Let us pray. Father, thank you that we can come to you without bringing anything in our hands. How tempting it is for many to offer their own good deeds, offer whatever else that they think that they can offer to you. But Lord, it is your grace that we understand that we are accepted because we bring nothing but our sin. Nothing but our sin would you receive from us. And that is the good news. That is the good news that we don't have to bring anything. We can only admit that we have nothing to bring to you. We praise you for that. We praise you for this amazing gospel that you have revealed to us, for this amazing humbling story that sinners like us get to partake in glory because of the work of Christ. I pray that these truths would ring so loud and so clearly from this passage of Scripture so that we would walk away from here celebrating the gospel. I pray for many who are caught believing false gospel, believing that there is something that they have to do, or believing that there is something that they can offer. I pray, Lord, for those who are teaching such things, Lord, I pray that your gospel would confront. I pray that the truth would go forth and shine forth from this place, Lord, that there is a great Savior who saves sinners who can do nothing, and that's all of us. I pray that you would be exalted through the preaching of your word. I ask this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And this afternoon, we'll be examining verses 2 through 12 in sermon entitled, as I said, Jesus plus anything equals false gospel. Now, biblical Christianity makes claims which are offensive to unconverted. If the unconverted truly understand what the Bible teaches, they will be offended. You see, at the top of that list of such claims is Jesus' claim in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, if we take Jesus at his word and we don't soften this claim in any way, it will offend people. Now, Jesus explicitly in this one verse here says that he is the only way to God. He is not a way. He is not a truth. He is not a life. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. What does that mean? It means that with this one claim, Jesus condemns every single religion outside of biblical Christianity. He says there is no salvation in any other religion. No wonder Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that you must enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The road to the kingdom is narrow, and compared to the broad road, there are only few travelers on that road. You see, when you preach this truth to an unconverted world, they will call you a narrow-minded bigot. Who are you to think that you got the only truth that will condemn, that will save people? But you know, when they do that, you don't have to take it personally because you are simply, faithfully representing the message that Jesus gave to you. 
Their problem is not really with you. Their problem is with Jesus who said, I am the way and I am the truth and the life. So if they reject that message, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. You see, we don't have to be offensive when we present this message because the gospel itself is offensive enough. You see, if people are offended by the gospel, that's not a problem. You just don't have to be a jerk to do it in such a way that people are offended by you. If people reject the gospel, that's their problem, and their problem is with Jesus. And you see, when people reject this message that Jesus is the only way, they demonstrate their pride. Why pride? Because a drowning person does not complain that only one rescue boat came to rescue him rather than the whole fleet. If you understand that you are drowning and somebody throws a lifeline to you, you grab it. You don't complain and sit there, why, why is there only one lifeline? No, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, if you think that trusting Jesus is a narrow road, let me narrow it down even further. You see, it's not just trusting in Jesus that is necessary for salvation. But it is trusting in Jesus alone. Trusting in Jesus alone. And this one word alone, it narrows this road even further. Because there are many religions and there are many denominations that claim to trust in Jesus. But trusting in Jesus includes adding all these other things. You must trust Jesus plus. They abhor this word alone. You see, the gospel that Paul defends in this book and all throughout the New Testament is the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace says that Jesus has accomplished everything and you cannot add anything to his work. All that was necessary was done by Christ. And when we say all, we mean all. You see, Jesus did not come to provide an opportunity for you to be saved. Jesus did not come to help you save yourself. No, Jesus came to save sinners. And when he finished on the cross and he said, it is done, everything was done. His sacrifice was perfect and complete and perfection needs no addition. You can't add something to something that is perfect to make it more perfect. And you see, as soon as you add anything to the work of Christ, you are in effect saying that the work of Christ was not perfect. And guess what? Jesus doesn't take that lightly. Now, as we worked our way through the book of Galatians, one word that we use to describe the system of works is the word legalism. Now, I want to define it briefly here because it is used in different senses and in different ways. When we're talking about legalism, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to getting saved, here's what we mean by legalism. Legalism is working in our power according to our rules to earn favor with God. It is working in our power and according to our rules in order to earn favor with God. You see, legalism always requires work because legalism is always man-centered. And this work is usually defined by a set of rules that you must keep and that you must obey. Some of these rules come from the Bible. Others people just add to it. For example, somebody might come along and say, listen, you have to dress modestly. You have to speak graciously. You can't watch TV or play cards. And the list could change, right? And so they add all these different rules and say, well, if you're a Christian, that's what Christian looks like. You see, in this, in this system, the emphasis is always on what you must do rather than why you must do it. What you do is more important than why. 
You see, and you must keep these rules in your power because God will not empower your obedience to a system which you made yourself. God will empower your obedience to his word, but he will not empower your obedience to a system which you made up or which somebody made up and imposed on you. Why would anyone want to obey these rules? Well, because they're told that you either get saved by doing that or you maintain your salvation by keeping these rules. Now, why is legalism so dangerous? It is so dangerous because it twists Scripture. Think about this. Are we commanded to work as believers? Yes. Are we commanded to obey Scripture? Yes. Does our obedience please God? Yes. But does it have anything to do with our standing with God? No. No. You see, your obedience and your work and what you do after your salvation pleases God because it demonstrates that you are saved, but it does not save you. But legalism, as we said before, it reverses that. It says you do all these things, and then as a result, you will be saved. You see, as a Christian, if you believe the gospel of grace, you are accepted simply because you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. End of story. You are accepted because of what Christ has done and what he has accomplished on the cross is sufficient and it is perfect. Now, you might be saved because you believe this gospel. You believe this gospel and you heard somebody preach to you and say, listen, there's nothing you can offer to God. Just come, believe, and repent. That's what happened to Galatians. Paul came and Paul preached the gospel to them and they believed. But with time, because of the influence of the false teachers who came in, or in some cases because people struggle with sin, which is reality for all people, and maybe for some other reasons, people fall into this trap of legalism. That's what happened to Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Listen, you escaped one slavery to idolatry, and you jump into another slavery by submitting to the law. Paul has confidence because he was there when they got converted. Paul has confidence that, listen, I know you guys. I know you've believed the gospel. I was the one who preached the gospel to you. I know you've received it. So listen, you will not return and you will not fall into slavery. You will not listen to false teachers. That's why in this text, as Paul sums up everything that he said so far, he says, I want to urge you to do two things. I want to urge you to reject the false gospel. And number two, I want to urge you to reject the false teachers who are promoting that gospel. Here's the main point of our verses here, verses 2 through 12. Since Christ's work is perfect, number one, do not add anything to it. And number two, reject all who do. Since Christ's work is perfect, do not add anything to it and reject all who do. Let's begin reading in chapter 5, verse 1, and read first 12 verses. Paul says, For it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. 
you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Let's begin with our first point, reject the false gospel. Apostle Paul is a very skilled writer, and he's writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as always, his arguments are very logical and they're irrefutable. You see, Paul is urging his readers to reject the false gospel, and he gives the reasons why. First reason you should reject false gospel is this. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. Look at verse 2. He says, Behold, I, Paul. Now again, Paul does not have to say this. These words are not necessary. He could have just said, he could have just gone, I'm saying to you this. No, this is here for emphasis. He's like, listen, let me stop here. Behold, I, Paul, I, Paul, who used to be the chief promoter of the law and the chief promoter of the circumcision. Listen, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will not benefit you. You have no benefit in Christ if you receive circumcision. Now, Paul is not against circumcision per se, because Paul himself was circumcised. He told us that, Philippians chapter 3. You remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul circumcised Timothy so that Timothy would be able to minister among the Jews. So he's not against circumcision per se, but what Paul is against, teaching that circumcision is somehow necessary either for salvation or for sanctification. That circumcision will somehow improve your standing with God. Paul's saying that adding circumcision is not harmless. And you see, that's how often people think. Like, yeah, I trust Christ. Yeah, I believe in Christ. Yes, Jesus died for my sins. But you know what? Just in case, you know what? Just do this thing. Add this a little bit. Maybe do this work. Maybe attend this meeting. Maybe, and you see, if you just add something to Jesus, I mean, what's the big deal? And Paul says, no, it's a big deal. It's a big deal because as soon as you're saying that you need to add a little bit to Jesus, you're saying that what Jesus has done is not sufficient for you. Notice, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Basically what he's saying, you have to choose a way to go. You cannot take two systems and you can say, I like this from here and I like that from here. I'm going to fuse them together. No, he says you're going to choose one route or the other. There's the gospel of grace and there's gospel of works. You cannot choose them both. You see, as soon as you add anything to Jesus, you lose Jesus. How does Christ benefit you in the gospel? Well, Christ is the one who offers salvation. 
Christ is the one who went, who paid on the cross for your sins, and Christ is the one who gave himself for you, so that if you trust in Christ, he gave himself to you. And when he says here, you will lose Christ, what does that mean? You will lose everything that Christ has to offer. You lose Christ. And when you lose Christ, you lose salvation, and you lose gospel. You cannot add anything to that. You see, this goes beyond circumcision. Because circumcision here is a stand-in for the gospel of works. Because circumcision here summarizes everything that these false teachers have taught. Everything that they're saying, listen, you need to obey the law. You need to go back to the Mosaic rules. And circumcision is just a stand-in for that. And Paul is saying, listen, if you're going to accept system of works by accepting circumcision, you are denying the work of Christ and you are denying the gospel. You see, in the Old Testament, circumcision was required by God. But even in the Old Testament, it was pointing to a deeper reality of the circumcision of the heart. And people have just taken that outward symbol. And in this case, we have Jewish people who have taken that and taken that as a badge of honor. Yes, I am a child of God because I am circumcised. See, even circumcision was administered prior to the Mosaic Covenant, but by this time it was so fused together with Mosaic Covenant that it stood then there for the works of the law. Now today, people don't argue about circumcision, whether they should do it or not to be saved, but you know what? They've substituted circumcision with so many different other things, right? You have to attend their meetings. You have to read our books. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to go through these sacraments. And people have added all these other things instead of circumcision. But guess what? Regardless of what you add, the result is the same. You lose Christ. If you add anything to Jesus Christ, you lose Christ. When you're adding something to Jesus, as I said again many times, and we'll say again, you are saying that Jesus is not enough because I need to offer something. You see, Jesus is either all or nothing. He's either all or nothing. The system of grace says that Jesus did everything for you and you need to add nothing to it. All you have to do is just embrace by faith what he has done for you. These two systems, they cannot be fused. Because as soon as you add works to grace, it ceases to be grace. You see, adding law to grace ruins grace. Jesus did not come simply to help us save ourselves. He says, you know what? I know you got 50 cents in your pocket, and you know you don't have other 50 cents. So you know you give your 50 cents, I'll give my. That's not what happened. You have no 50 cents to offer. All you have is your sin. And he says, that's why I have to do everything. But you see, our pride, thinking that, yes, we do have something to offer, causes us to say, well, what do you mean I have nothing to offer? Look at me. That's how we think. That's a sinful human bent. And Paul says, no, if you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. That's why you reject the false gospel. Not only that, reason number two, you reject the gospel. Why? Because if you accept any part of the law, you must obey all of it. If you accept any part of the law, you must obey all of it. Look at verse 3. He says, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. I testify again. In case I wasn't clear in verse 2, let me say it again. Let me add this. Every man who thinks that circumcision, or you swapped up for whatever else you think, will improve your standing before God, somehow will improve your standing before God, he says, is under obligation to keep the whole law. 
Notice what he's saying here. He says, if you take mosaic law, it's not a buffet, Chinese buffet, when you just go and you pick what you like and what you don't like. That's not how it works. He says, if you're going to choose this system, according to this system, you must take it all. You must obey every single precept of the law. You must obey every single commandment. You can never violate the law. Because if you're thinking that you're going to get saved by works, you better be perfect. You remember what James said in chapter 2? For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. How many pinholes does it take to pop a balloon? I mean, what if it's just like little one? The effect is the same. He says that's exactly what happens to the law. The law, you must be perfect. The law demands perfection. And as soon as you violate it, it's just that one little pinhole that comes, causes all things to come and crush down. If you receive any part of the law, you are a debtor to the law. And remember that law comes with curses. That as soon as you violate law, you're cursed. Because we talked about it in chapter 3. So he says, let me remind you. Let me remind you, if you choose to go the route of human works, you must be perfect. And not just perfect from now on. No, perfect from the first breath you take to the last breath you take. And guess what? No one qualifies. It's not like thinking like, well, okay, in the future I'm going to be better. You know, I had a rough week this week, but next week it's going to... No. You must be perfect all the time. If you violated any one of the laws any one time in your life, from the moment you took your first breath, you've sinned and you broke the law. That's not good news. That is not good news. That is not the gospel. And Paul says, reject this gospel and anyone who's offering that gospel to you. Reason number three why you must reject the gospel is because if you accept justification by law, you reject justification by grace. Now, this is the same point he made in verse 4, verse 2, but now he makes it in a different way. He says, you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Now, some people use this verse to justify their idea that one who's genuinely saved could lose this salvation because he says here, you have fallen from grace. But that is not what Paul is talking about here, and the context makes it clear. Notice again, Paul is comparing two systems. There is a system of works, and there is a system of grace. And the point is simple. You must choose one of them. You cannot fuse them both. You are seeking either to be justified by law or justified by grace. You cannot add law to grace. If you are seeking to be justified by the law, you are in effect by doing that, rejecting the system of grace. That's why he says you have fallen from grace. You can't add to grace and still maintain that it's grace. You can't add works to grace and still maintain that it's grace. Remember Romans 11 verse 6? For it is by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You see, if you take a cup of pure water, and here's the question, how much dirt can you add to that cup and still claim that it's pure? None. None, because as soon as you add any, and that's exactly what happens with grace. As soon as you add any work to grace, it ceases to be grace. And that's what he's saying. If you're going to seek justification by law, you're in effect saying, thank you, Jesus, very much. I appreciate what you did, but I'm going to try this route. He says, are you ready to do that? 
That's what the gospel of works offers to you. That's why when he says here, you have been severed from Christ. If you're going to go this route, you've rejected Christ. And you say, I don't need what you've done. I don't need your work. You have been severed from Christ. You removed yourself from the sphere where his grace operates. To be severed from Christ is to lose fellowship with him. Is to lose union with him. He says, if you're going to cut your flesh, you're going to cut yourself off of Christ. That's the picture. If you're going to receive this system, you're in effect saying, I don't need Jesus. You see, to fall from grace is to abandon the system of grace and to embrace the system of works. Now, this could happen in various ways. For example, some people who are unconverted, they're exposed to the gospel. I mean, you go around and you preach the gospel to people, and not everyone receives that, right? And even for some time, those people might even come into the church, and they might experience the benefits of the gospel, just like believers in the book of Hebrews, right? And then pretty soon, or, you know, it gets tough, or it gets harder. For whatever reason, they walk away and say, you know what, I tried that, and it's not working for me, I'm going, and you've abandoned the system of grace. And you went to the law. And in the same way, believers can do, who genuinely are converted, who genuinely believe, who genuinely trust, and then they're tempted to go to the system of works. And although they are sons, they begin to live as slaves under external system, ceremonies, rituals, and traditions. That could happen. And that's what these people were in danger of, and so Paul warns them of the false gospel. See, the implication of what Paul is saying here are vast. Again, think of how many Christians out there, Christian denominations, they claim to believe in Jesus, and yet they still attempt to fuse those two systems. They add things to their list of things you must do to believe. It is not a free gospel where you believe in grace, where you believe in Christ, where all of your sins are forgiven. But you know what? If you're going to be saved, here are the hoops that you have to jump through. And in, in every religion or in every denomination, it changes right? You got to go through these seven sacraments. In other religions, you know, you got to go through this baptism. And then on top of that, you got to give alms. And it changes. And so people add on the system. And Paul is saying, listen, as soon as you add anything to Christ, you have rejected Christ. If you're seeking to be justified by works, you cannot claim Christ. That's why you should reject the false gospel. Reason number four, you should reject the false gospel because if you reject justification by grace, you forfeit the hope of righteousness. You forfeit the hope of righteousness. Look at verse 5. He says, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. We, in contrast to those who accept the system of works. We, that includes Paul, that includes Galatians who have not yet embraced this false gospel. He says, you received this gospel, notice it says here, by faith, which is granted to you through the Spirit. You remember that even faith itself is a gift from God. It is not something that you generate, but it is something that God gives to you as a gift. And it happens to you because the Spirit of God works in your heart to cause you to be born again and to receive that faith. And that's why Paul says, we through the Spirit, by faith, those who are genuinely converted, they have experienced the work of the Spirit. They have received the gift of faith. And he says, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. 
Now, we're talking about righteousness, and we've dealt with this before, so just by way of reminder, we're talking about positional righteousness and practical righteousness. When you place your faith in Christ, positionally you made righteous. All of your sins are forgiven. Everything from the moment you were conceived to the day you die, every single sin has been wiped clean because Christ died for them all. And you have been declared positionally righteous. God looks at you through the blood of Christ, and all he sees is the righteousness of Christ. That's position. Practice is not so. Because practically you still sin every single day. And that's where you have difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is God's declaration that you are saved. Sanctification is God bringing your position to match with your practice. As you grow, as you, are, as you live your Christian walk, you become more and more like Christ. You see, a day is coming when your position will match your practice. And that's why Paul says here, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. You see, Judaizers, they try to make you righteous by doing things, by working for things. Paul says, we're not working for righteousness, we're waiting for righteousness. Because we're not trusting in ourselves. We are waiting for the hope of righteousness. But this does not mean that faith is passive. This does not mean that you just sit there and you wait until Christ comes. No, notice, look at verse 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But what? But faith, working through love. Now we'll talk more about this next Sunday here, but notice this phrase, but faith, working through love. You see, when you are in the realm of grace, it does not mean, it doesn't matter if you are circumcised or uncircumcised. But what does matter is whether you have faith that works. In fact, you can only be in the realm of grace if you have faith. And notice that this faith manifests itself through love. Because it says faith working through love. How do you know that you have that faith? Because there is a manifestation of that. And in this case, he says faith working through love. And next Sunday, we'll spend more time on this. Listen, you don't work to be saved. You work because you are saved. And this is what makes all the difference. You work as one who has been saved. And notice this trilogy, Christian virtues that you have in these two verses. We have hope, we have faith, and we have love. How do you know you've experienced grace? It is because you believe. Because you have faith. And that faith manifests itself in love for God and for others. Because you are waiting and you are hoping for that day when your practice will match your position. But this is not possible for you if you accept the false gospel. If you decide to go your own route, if you decide to work on your own, Paul says, listen, you forfeit the hope of righteousness. There is no salvation in the other system. There is no salvation in the system of works. If you accept the false gospel, you are rejecting justification by grace, and therefore you have no hope of righteousness. That's why you should reject the false gospel. The false gospel that says that in order for you to be accepted by God, you must do this, that, or the other, and you can substitute that with anything. You must reject it because that gospel will rob you of Christ. The gospel will subject you to a law or to some man-made system of rules. And as a result, you will forfeit the hope of ever possessing the righteousness that is necessary for salvation. You see, that's why we cling to the gospel. That's why we proclaim the gospel. 
Because on your worst day, you do not want to be accepted because of who you are. And even on your best day, you still don't want to be accepted because of what you are. Because John Piper says you must repent for every good thing you do. Because every good thing you do is tainted by sin in some way, right? And so we want to be accepted simply because we trust Christ. And the good days, praise the Lord because the Spirit is at work. And the bad days, praise the Lord for the gospel because I'm still accepted. That's what Paul said. You must cling to the gospel and you must reject the false gospel. But not only do we reject the false gospel, we also, number two, reject the false teachers. You see, false gospel does not rear its ugly head on its own. It comes through the influence of false teachers. Now, those of us who teach may at times say things that are not true or perhaps not accurate completely. Why? Because we're not perfect. But hopefully if we're corrected by the word or by those who know the word, we will have enough humility to say, hey, listen, last Sunday I preached this. I was wrong because this is actually true. Now, this was not the case here. This is not the case with these false teachers who are just ignorant or just untaught, and they're not really sure what Paul teaches. No, they clearly understood what Paul taught. They heard the gospel. They understood exactly what Paul, what Paul was teaching. And then they go and then infiltrate the churches where Paul taught the gospel, and they say, no, no, what Paul was teaching is wrong. Let me teach you the right way. No, notice, these are false teachers who are intentionally promoting false gospel. And you know, while the New Testament... The pattern of the New Testament that it comes along struggling sinners to assist them and to help them. is very patient with them. But you know what? None of the authors of the New Testament pull any punches from false teachers. Never. Never. False teachers are always swift or the reaction to false teachers must always be swift. And in this case, Paul gives five reasons why you should reject false teachers. Five reasons. And by rejecting them, I mean that you do not subject yourself under their influence and you expel them from your midst. That's what Paul is saying. Do not subject yourself to sitting under those teachings, to listening to their podcasts, to listening to watching them on TV or on radio or whatever else. Do not sit under them. Do not accept what they're promoting. And if they are in your church, get rid of them. Kick them out. That's what he's saying. Now you might say, why? Here are the reasons why. Reason number one. Because false teachers hinder your progress in the gospel. False teachers hinder your progress in the gospel. Look at verse 7. Paul says here, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now notice the metaphor that Paul is using here. The picture of a race, which he often uses when he talks about Christian life. He says, you were running a race. Your race began when I preached the gospel to you. And guess what? You began very, very well. I was there. I preached the gospel to you. Notice this. You were running well. Why were you running well? You were running well because you heard the gospel and because you believed the gospel. Because you accepted the grace of Christ. Because you trusted the grace of Christ. You trusted the power of the Spirit to work in your life. And he says, I was ministering among you and you were running well. But now, because of the influence of these false teachers, some of you are trying to complete the race by some legalistic system of self-effort and reliance upon the law. Is that not what he said? If you go back to chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? You trusted in Christ. You believed the gospel. And now you think, well, now in order for me to maintain my salvation, I must do this. That's foolish. 
No, you are accepted because of the work of Christ. Now, when Paul asks, who hindered you from obeying the truth? I mean, he could be thinking of an individual who is the head, false teacher there. He could be thinking about that. But he can take it in another way. He's like, who in the world do you think you are that you can come along and contradict everything that the Bible has been teaching from Genesis until now? I mean, how arrogant do you have to be to come along and to say, well, guess what? Yeah, I know Abraham was saved by faith, and I know that David was saved by faith, and Moses by faith, but now, who do you think you are? Who are these false teachers? What work you see, work-based system distorts the gospel. It distorts the gospel from the very beginning. And you remember, he already dealt with Genesis, going all the way back to Abraham. This has been the system from very beginning. God always operates with man and on these terms. You are saved but by what I do. Notice Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you? What's interesting, this word obeying is the same word that in verse 9 is translated as confidence. You can put it this way. Who hindered you from having confidence in the truth? You know you have confidence in the gospel when you're saved. Like if you were saved, like the next day somebody comes to you and says, you're going to heaven? You? I mean, I know you. I know what you did yesterday. And you're like, well, yeah. It's not about me. It's about him. And then a year down the road or two years down the road, right, you still struggle with sin and somebody comes along and says, you're a Christian? You're going to heaven? And what do you start? What happened? Where is your confidence? Is your confidence now in what you do? How well you are in defeating sin? What is your confidence in? And Paul says, who hindered you from having confidence in the truth? And the truth here obviously refers to the gospel because that's what was being attacked. It's not just general truth. Who hindered you from having confidence in the gospel? You see, work-based system distorts both justification and sanctification. If you rely on your works, you have problem with how you get saved and how you maintain that salvation. You might be genuinely saved, but if you don't understand justification and sanctification, your growth will be, you, you will not grow. You will struggle in your growth. You see, legalistic system produces uniformity, but it does not produce maturity. When you have legalistic groups or churches, people look the same, people act the same, people speak the same, but it's not maturity. They're just conformed to an outward standard that is placed upon them. And many of them don't even know why. You see, Paul is concerned that they are not finishing the race. He says, who hindered you? Now, we know that how you finish is more important than how you start. And in this case, Paul says, listen, you started well because you accepted grace. But now you're accepting the influence of these false teachers, and they're preventing you from moving forward, from progressing in grace. That's why you should reject them. You should send them out. Just like last time we saw Abraham sent Ishmael out. He says, in the same way, you should send out those teachers who are promoting that. You should get rid of those books. You should get rid of those podcasts. You should get rid of those teachers who are telling you that you will be accepted by God if you do this, that, or the other. Trust in Christ. Get rid of them. Throw them away. Number two, you should reject false teachers because false teachers are from Satan. That's pretty blatant. Galatians 5.8, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. The gospel that they're preaching to you does not come from above. And guess what? If the gospel doesn't come from above, it comes from below. 
right? That's why they come from Satan. Notice false teachers were attempting to persuade them to follow them rather than following Paul. Isn't that what Paul said in, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 17? He says, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek Christ. Is that what it says? No, so that you will seek them. Because false teachers don't want to point you to Christ because they want to point you to themselves. Look at me. Look how gifted I am. Look at, look at, follow me and be my follower. And he says, Paul says, listen, what I preach to you is not my gospel. It is the gospel of grace. Don't follow me. Follow Christ and follow me to the extent that I follow Christ. That's what he's saying. They're trying to attract you to themselves. Notice he says, he who calls you. Who's that? That's not Paul. That's God himself. Paul says, I was a human instrument through which God calls you because there's a general call, there's a effectual call. General call is what we do when we proclaim the gospel. And through the general call, God effectually calls people to himself. And they hear the call, they respond to the gospel. And he says, this gospel that they're preaching does not come from God, and therefore it comes from Satan. Those who preach that false gospel, those who preach that system, they do not represent God, and therefore you should reject them. Next, you should reject false teachers because false teachers pollute the church. False teachers and false gospel pollutes the church. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Notice Paul employs this parable to communicate this point. He says you take a little leaven and you put it in the lump and it will pretty soon affect the entire lump. That's what happens to false teaching. That's what happens when you give place for false teachers to operate. You might think, well, their error isn't that big or their influence isn't that great. And Paul says, guess what? Pretty soon it will affect everything and everyone. Now, there are things that we can disagree with on and be in the same body, right? There are things that are tertiary that then, you know, don't make huge difference on how we do things. But you know what? There's one thing that you can disagree on, and that's the gospel. You can disagree on how you get saved. And Paul says here, these are people who are promoting false gospel. And their false gospel will spread like cancer, which multiply itself and will multiply and affect all the cells. It will affect the entire body. Listen to this warning that Paul gave to the church in Rome. He says, Romans 16, 17, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learn, and turn away from them. Exactly the same thing that was happening here. You've heard the truth. You've learned the gospel. And someone comes along and says, by the way, let me give you an improvement on what you heard. What does Paul says? For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. People who are not trained, people who are new in the faith, and they want to receive the law, and this was temptation for these Galatians. I mean, think about, I mean, we, we could be so hard on them, but we don't necessarily have to be because, I mean, if you were pagan, who never heard the gospel, who never read the Bible, never had access to the Bible, and you heard the message of Paul and you believed and you came to church, you've accepted Christ, and when you show up to church, you can't open your Bible. You can't open iPhone and you'll download 10 different versions. They have no access to that. I mean, there is one copy of Scripture somewhere, and they have to go somewhere and listen to that. And so they don't know what Scripture says. And some genius comes in here and is like, guys, I've memorized half of the Bible. Let me tell you what it actually says. And guess what? If you're a new convert, you'd be like, really? 
you know what it says? Well, tell me. And so guys start telling him, like, by the way, you know, you have to keep the law because Mosaic law. And they're like, really? And so some of them genuinely, without even understanding, without even knowing, like, oh, so now that's what we have to do. And so they're being tempted. And it's natural to understand how they were tempted by that. And so it is for us. You know, if you're not sound in the truth, if you just got converted, or if you've been in a church that hasn't been teaching you the truth, and you don't even know, and you're like, you turn on Osteen, you're like, that sounds good. You turn on John MacArthur, you're like, man, that sounds cool. And you, know, you can't tell the truth. And that's why you need to be grounded in the truth, because as Paul says here, by their speech, they deceive those who are unsuspecting. And some of these people were deceived because they wanted to know the truth. They wanted to hear the Bible and hear these guys who are bringing Old Testament to them and saying, well, listen, look at this. That's what you have to do. But guess what? If you listen to them, if you listen to the false gospel, it will affect the entire body. You should reject them. You should reject the gospel because that will affect you. That will affect those who listen to you. Paul says reject them and do not listen to them. Reason number four, you should reject false teachers because false teachers are subject to judgment. Look at verse 10. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Notice, Paul says, listen, I was there when you got saved. You heard the gospel from me. I preached the gospel to you. And I have confidence in you. Paul says, I have confidence in you. Ultimately, my confidence is in the Lord. That's why he says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord. Why? Because the Lord keeps his own. If you belong to the Lord, the Lord will keep you. That's why Paul says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord. Now, this is interesting. You know this confidence formula here when he says, I have confidence in you, that you will adopt no other view. You know, when your parents told you, I know you won't disappoint me, they were actually telling you not to disappoint them, right? You know, you know that, right? That's what Paul was saying here. I have confidence in you that you will accept no other view. What is he telling them? Don't accept any other view. Don't listen to these guys. Reject them. Do not disappoint me. I have confidence in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, which means that you will not accept false teachers and you will not accept their false teaching. Do not believe their message because their message does not bring salvation, but it brings condemnation. So he says, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. You see, these false teachers who promote false gospel, they are enemies of God. And Paul says, I don't care who they are. I don't care what positions they hold. It makes no difference to me. The one who is disturbing you, whoever he is, might be the most educated person you know, must be the most brilliant one you know, he might have great skills in oratory, or whatever, I don't care. He says, if he's preaching false gospel to you, he will bear his judgment, whoever he is. They're causing people to stumble. They're causing people to fall from grace. They're causing people to submit themselves to regulations which will not save them, and their judgment is severe. Listen to Peter's message to false teachers. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he said, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned, 
and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And then he says this, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. You must reject them because God has rejected them and he will judge them. And if you accept them and you submit to their teaching, you're putting yourself under them and you will receive the same judgment. Finally, you must reject false teachers because false teachers persecute true teachers and despise the cross of Christ. Give verse 11. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision... Why am I still persecuted? Then the cross, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. See, in this verse, Paul defends himself against the charge that he was somehow preaching circumcision. I mean, apparently these false teachers accused Paul of being inconsistent. You know, when it's convenient, Paul is against circumcision. But when it's convenient, he's for it. I mean, maybe they even used the example of Acts 16. You know, it was convenient to circumcise Timothy, so Paul was all for circumcision back then. But notice they're accusing, they're the same. Well, he still preaches circumcision. And Paul said, hey, if I am preaching circumcision, why am I persecuted? Now notice, Paul says, if I were to preach circumcision, I would be just like you false teachers. And everything that you do that I said about you would apply to me. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. He talks about them again. He says, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. Why? Simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Then he says, they preach circumcision because they want to avoid persecution. Because Paul says, most of the sufferings that I endured came at the hands of the Jews who thought that I was a traitor and who persecuted me because they thought what I was preaching contradicted the Old Testament scripture. I mean, you read the book of Acts. Most of the persecutions of Paul that starts, they start with the Jews who come and they reject the message. Because Paul would go into the city, he would first go into a synagogue, and in that synagogue where people were exposed to the word of God, he would preach the truth to them. When they were rejecting him, he says, thank you very much, I'm going to the Gentiles. And those Jews, they would go from city to city and cause riots and persecute Paul. And Paul says, listen, I could have avoided all that. I know a recipe for avoiding persecution. Just say, guys, you're not that bad. You can just get circumcised, and you have things to offer to God. It's easy. He says, you just accept circumcision, and you're good. But notice, he says, I am being persecuted everywhere. How is it that I'm preaching circumcision? I am not preaching circumcision. Now notice, he says, I used to preach circumcision, because he says, I, if I still preach circumcision... Because you remember who Paul was? Paul was a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, who would kill Christians because they did not follow Mosaic law and all the prescriptions of the Old Testament. He says, I was the chief promoter of the circumcision. That was back in the day before I met Jesus. But ever since I met Jesus, I have never preached circumcision as a means of being saved or a means of maintaining my salvation. Now, I preach the cross of Christ. And guess what? He says the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to the works-based system. You see, the cross of Christ, or to be more specific, what happened on that cross abolished the old covenant system. One who was regarded a criminal 
by everyone who died on that cross and three days later walked out of that tomb is the one who is able to save sinners. Now, to a natural man, that's offensive. I mean, you're going to tell me that some guy died as a criminal, three days later walked out of the tomb, and that guy is going to get me to glory. Is that what you're telling me? Sounds foolish to me. Is that not what most people say? And that's not you because it's always been like that. That's the response that Paul got. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is what? It's foolishness. It's foolishness that some guy on the cross could give you eternal life. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Did Paul alter his message because it was foolishness to his listeners? No, he says, for, Jew, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And as a result, Paul was persecuted. They despised his message and they despised Paul and persecuted him from town to town. Paul says, I know how to avoid persecution but I'm not going to do it because I would have to deny the cross of Christ, and I will never do that. At the end of chapter 6, he says, I will only boast in the cross of Christ. That's what he says, because the cross of Christ is the only way of salvation. Reject false teachers because they hate Christ, because they hate the cross of Christ. They malign Christ because they say Christ is not sufficient. Now, Paul could have stopped there, but it doesn't. And he closes this section with words that you wouldn't necessarily think that you will find in the Bible. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I wish those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Let me translate that. Paul says, listen, you who love circumcision so much, why are you tinkering at the edges? Why don't you go all the way? Castrate yourself. That's what he's saying here. Oh, you think circumcision is great? Well, why don't you prove your devotion? Go castrate yourself. You know, pagans down the road in those pagan temples, the eunuchs, they prove their devotion to God by castrating themselves. You love circumcision so much? Go do it. And we're like, what? That's in the Bible? Yeah. You're like, well, but Paul, Paul I mean, that's not so nice. I mean, is, is this Christ-like? Well, Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he's so fed up with these false teachers that you go castrate yourselves. And when you castrate yourself, you will cut off all the offsprings, and so maybe you'll go out of existence. That's what he's saying. Go castrate yourself. That's what he's saying. Because Paul is fed up with these false teachers. Why? Because, I mean, he planted this church. He gave birth to these believers, right? And so all of a sudden, these people are coming inside, and they're destroying their faith. They're stopping their progress in the gospel. And Paul does not mince word with these people. He does like, okay, you know, don't cuddle them. Kick them out. That's what he's saying here. Get rid of them. Why? Because false teachers, they hinder the gospel. They hinder your progress in the gospel. They do not come from God. They pollute the church. They're under judgment. They will be judged. They persecute the truth, and they despise the cross of Christ. That's why you don't accept the false gospel. And that's why you don't sit under false teachers. Let's come back to the proposition that I gave in the beginning. Since Christ's work is perfect, 
do not add anything to it and reject all who do. Here's another way of saying this. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. When it comes to your standing before God, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for your justification and Jesus is enough for your sanctification. The gospel of grace is the gospel of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. His work needs no additions because it is perfect. So let me ask you, do you believe this gospel? Do you cling to this gospel as if your life depended on it? Because it does. Because every other gospel is no gospel and it is no good news. That's why we open the service with Paul's words in Galatians chapter 1 and we'll close with these words. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have, we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Reject that message because it is not the gospel. And reject those teachers because they are not from God. And if you put yourself under their influence, they will pollute you and they will destroy you. So don't do it. Trust the gospel of grace. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would, by your spirit, hold us so that to our last breath, we sing this song that we cling simply to the cross and we bring nothing in our hands. Anything that we do post-conversion, it is what you do through us. And I pray that we would work hard, that we would be diligent with the things that you give to us, but never trust in those things because our trust is in Christ, because his work is perfect. Praise you for this amazing gospel. Amen.